34. S. Dickens reproduces the spirit of the reign of terror so well that a tale of two cities is an excellent supplement to the history of the period. It is written in Dickens's usual picturesque style, and reveals his usual imaginative outlook on life and his fondness for fine sentiments and dramatic episodes. Indeed, all his qualities are here shown, not brilliantly or garishly, as in other novels, but subdued and softened, like a shaded light, for artistic effect. Those who are interested in Dickens's growth and methods can hardly do better than to read in succession his first three novels, Pickwick, Oliver Twist, and Nicholas Nickleby, which, as we have indicated, show clearly how he passed from fun to serious purpose, and which furnish in combination the general plan of all his later works. For the rest, we can only indicate those which, in our personal judgment, seem best worth reading, Bleak House, Dummy and Son our mutual friend, and old curiosity shop, but we are not yet far enough away from the first popular success of these works to determine their permanent value and influence. William Makepeace Thackeray 1811 1863 as the two most successful novelists of their day. It is natural for us, as it was for their personal friends and admirers, to compare Dickens and Thackeray with respect to their life and work, and their attitude toward the world in which they lived. Dickens, after a desperately hard struggle in his boyhood, without friends or higher education, comes into manhood cheery, self-confident, energetic, filled with the joy of his work, and in the world, which had at first treated him so harshly, he finds good everywhere, even in the jails and in the slums, simply because he is looking for it. Thackeray, after a boyhood spent in the best of English schools, with money, friends, and comforts of every kind, faces life timidly distrustfully, and dislikes the literary work which makes him famous, he has a gracious and lovable personality, is kind of heart, and reveres all that is pure and good in life, yet he is almost cynical toward the world which uses him so well, and finds shams, deceptions, vanities everywhere, because he looks for them, one finds what one seeks in this world, but it is perhaps significant that Dickens sought his golden fleece among plain people and Thackeray in high society. The chief difference between the two novelists, however, is not one of environment but of temperament. Put Thackeray in a workhouse, and he will still find material for another book of snobs. Put Dickens in society, and he cannot help finding and dreamed of possibilities among bewigged and bepowdered high lords and ladies. For Dickens is romantic and emotional, and interprets the world largely through his imagination. Thackeray is the realist and moralist who judges solely by observation and reflection. He aims to give us a true picture of the society of his day, and as he finds it pervaded by intrigues and snobbery he proceeds to satirize it and point out its moral evils. In his novels he is influenced by Swift and Fielding, but he is entirely free from the bitterness of the one and the coarseness of the other, and his satire is generally softened by a noble tenderness. Taken together, the novels of Dickens and Thackeray give us a remarkable picture of all classes of English society in the middle of the 19th century. Life. Thackeray was born in 1811, in Calcutta, where his father held a civil position under the Indian government. When the boy was five years old his father died, and the mother returned with her child to England. Presently she married again, and Thackeray was sent to the famous Charterhouse School, of which he has given us a vivid picture in the Newcombs. Such a school would have been a veritable heaven to Dickens, who at this time was tossed about between poverty and ambition, 
but Thackeray detested it for its rude manners, and occasionally referred to it as the slaughterhouse. Writing to his mother he says, there are 370 boys in the school. I wish, there were only 369. In 1829 Thackeray entered Trinity College, Cambridge, but left after less than two years, without taking a degree, and went to Germany and France where he studied with the idea of becoming an artist. When he became of age, in 1832, he came into possession of a comfortable fortune, returned to England, and settled down in the temple to study law. Soon he began to dislike the profession intensely, and we have in Pendennis a reflection of his mental attitude toward the law and the young men who studied it. He soon lost his fortune, partly by gambling and speculation, partly by unsuccessful attempts at running a newspaper, and at 22 began for the first time to earn his own living as an artist and illustrator. An interesting meeting between Thackeray and Dickens at this time 1836 suggests the relative importance of the two writers. Seymour, who was illustrating the Pickwick Papers, had just died, and Thackeray called upon Dickens with a few drawings and asked to be allowed to continue the illustrations. Dickens was at this time at the beginning of his great popularity. The better literary artist, whose drawings were refused, was almost unknown and had to work hard for more than ten years before he received recognition. Disappointed by his failure as an illustrator, he began his literary career by writing satires on society for Fraser's magazine. This was the beginning of his success, but though the yellow plush papers, the great Hoggerty Diamond, Catherine, the Fitzboodlers, the Book of Snobs, Barry Lyndon, and various other amateur works made him known to a few readers of Punch and of Fraser's magazine. It was not till the publication of Vanity Fair 1847-1848 that he began to be recognized as one of the great novelists of his day. All his earlier works are satires, some upon society, others upon the popular novelists, Bulwer, Disraeli, and especially Dickens, with whose sentimental heroes and heroines he had no patience whatever. He had married, meanwhile, in 1836, and for a few years was very happy in his home. Then disease and insanity fastened upon his young wife, and she was placed in an asylum. The whole afterlife of our novelist was darkened by this loss worse than death. He became a man of the clubs, rather than of his own home, and though his wit and kindness made him the most welcome of clubmen, there was an undercurrent of sadness in all that he wrote. Long afterwards he said that, though his marriage ended in shipwreck, he would do it over again. For behold love is the crown and completion of all earthly good. After the moderate success of Vanity Fair, Thackeray wrote the three novels of his middle life upon which his fame chiefly rests. Pendennis in 1850, Henry Esmond in 1852, and The Newcombs in 1855. Dickens's great popular success as a lecturer and dramatic reader had led to a general desire on the part of the public to see and to hear literary men, and Thackeray, to increase his income gave two remarkable courses of lectures, the first being English humorists of the 18th century, and the second the for George, both courses being delivered with gratifying success in England and especially in America. Dickens, as we have seen, was disappointed in America and vented his displeasure in outrageous criticism, but Thackeray, with his usual good breeding, saw only the best side of his generous entertainers and in both his public and private utterances emphasized the virtues of the new land, whose restless energy seemed to fascinate him, and like Dickens, he had no confidence in himself when he faced an audience, 
and like most literary men he disliked lecturing, and soon gave it up. In 1860 he became editor of the Cornhill Magazine, which prospered in his hands, and with a comfortable income he seemed just ready to do his best work for the world which has always believed that he was capable of even better things than he ever wrote when he died suddenly in 1863. His body lies buried in Kamsil Green, and only a bust does honor to his memory in Westminster Abbey. Works of Thackeray. The beginner will do well to omit the earlier satires of Thackeray written while he was struggling to earn a living from the magazines, and opened Henry Esmond 1852, his most perfect novel, though not the most widely known and read, the fine historical and literary, flavor of this story is one of its most marked characteristics, and only one who knows something of the history and literature of the 18th century can appreciate its value, the hero, Colonel Esmond, relates his own story, carrying the reader through the courts and camps of Queen Anne's reign, and giving the most complete and accurate picture of a past age that has ever appeared in a novel. Thackeray Island as we have said, a realist, and he begins his story by adopting the style and manner of a scholarly gentleman of the period he is describing. He has an extraordinary knowledge of 18th century literature, and he reproduces its style in detail, going so far as to insert in his narrative an alleged essay from the Tatler and so perfectly is it done that it is impossible to say wherein it differs from the style of Addison and Steele. In his matter also Thackeray is realistic, reflecting not the pride and pomp of war, which are largely delusions, but its brutality and barbarism, which are all too real, painting generals and leaders, not as the newspaper heroes to whom we are accustomed, but as moved by intrigues, petty jealousies, and selfish ambitions, showing us the great Duke of Marlborough not as the military hero, the idol of war-crazed multitudes, but as without personal honor, and governed by despicable avarice. In a word, Thackeray gives us the backstairs view of war, which island as a rule, totally neglected in our histories. When he deals with the literary men of the period, he uses the same frank realism, showing us Steele and Addison and other leaders, not with halos about their heads, as popular authors, but in slippers and dressing gowns, smoking a pipe in their own rooms, or else growing tipsy and hilarious in the taverns, just as they appeared in daily life, both in style and in matter. Therefore, Esmond deserves to rank as probably the best historical novel in our language. The plot of the story island like most of Thackeray's plots, very slight, but perfectly suited to the novelist's purpose. The plans of his characters fail, their ideals grow dim, there is a general disappearance of youthful ambitions. There is a love story at the center, but the element of romance, which furnishes the light and music and fragrance of love, is inconspicuous. The hero, after ten years of devotion to a young woman, a paragon of beauty, finally marries her mother, and ends with a few pious observations concerning heaven's mercy and his own happy lot. Such an ending seems disappointing, almost bizarre in view of the romantic novels to which we are accustomed, but we must remember that Thackeray's purpose was to paint life as he saw it, and that in life men and things often take a different way from that described in romances. As we grow acquainted with Thackeray's characters, we realize that no other ending was possible to his story, and conclude that his plot, like his style, is perhaps as near perfection as a realistic novelist can ever come. Vanity Fair 1847-1848 is the best known of Thackeray's novels. It was his first great work, and was intended to express his own views of the social life about him. 
and to protest against the overdrawn heroes of popular novels. He takes for his subject that vanity fair to which Christian and faithful were conducted on their way to the heavenly city, as recorded in Pilgrim's Progress. In this fair there are many different moves, given over to the sale of all sorts of vanities, and as we go from one to another we come in contact with juggling, cheats, games, plays, fools, apes, knaves, rogues, and that of every kind. Evidently this is a picture of one side of social life, but the difference between Bunyan and Thackeray is simply this, that Bunyan made Vanity Fair a small incident in a long journey, a place through which most of us pass on our way to better things, while Thackeray, describing high society in his own day, makes it a place of long sojourn, wherein his characters spend the greater part of their lives. Thackeray styles this work, a novel without a hero, the whole action of the story which is without plot or development, revolves about two women, Amelia, a meek creature of the milk and water type, and Becky Sharp, a keen, and principled intriguer, who lets nothing stand in the way of her selfish desire to get the most out of the fools who largely constitute society. On the whole, it is the most powerful but not the most wholesome of Thackeray's works. In his second important novel, Pendennis 1849-1850, we have a continuation of the satire on society begun in Vanity Fair. This novel, which the beginner should read after Esmond, is interesting to us for two reasons, because it reflects more of the details of Thackeray's life than all his other writings, and because it contains one powerfully drawn character who is a perpetual reminder of the danger of selfishness. The hero is neither angel nor imp, in Thackeray's words, but the typical young man of society, whom he knows thoroughly and whom he paints exactly as the islander careless, good-natured but essentially selfish person, who goes through life intent on his own interests. Pendennis is a profound moral study, and the most powerful arraignment of well-meaning selfishness in our literature, not even excepting George Eliot's Romola, which it suggests. Two other novels, The Newcombs 1855 and The Virginians 1859, complete the list of Thackeray's great works of fiction. The former is a sequel to Pendennis, and the latter to Henry Esmond, and both share the general fate of sequels in not being quite equal in power or interest to their predecessors. The Newcombs, however, deserves a very high place. Some critics, indeed, placing it at the head of the author's works. Like all Thackeray's novels, it is a story of human frailty, but here the author's innate gentleness and kindness are seen at their best and the hero is perhaps the most genuine and lovable of all his characters. Thackeray is known in English literature as an essayist as well as a novelist. His English humorists and the Four George are among the finest essays of the 19th century. In the former especially, Thackeray shows not only a wide knowledge but an extraordinary understanding of his subject. Apparently this 19th century writer knows Addison, Fielding, Swift, Smollett, and other great writers of the past century almost as intimately as one knows his nearest friend, and he gives us the fine flavor of their humor in a way which no other writer, save perhaps Lard, has ever rivaled. The Four George is in a vein of delicate satire, and presents a rather unflattering picture of four of England's rulers and of the courts in which they moved. Both these works are remarkable for their exquisite style, their gentle humor, their keen literary criticisms and for the intimate knowledge and sympathy which makes the people of a past age live once more in the written pages. General characteristics, in treating of Thackeray's view of life, as reflected in his novels, critics vary greatly, 
and the following summary must be taken not as a positive judgment but only as an attempt to express the general impression of his works on an uncritical reader. He is first of a realist, who paints life as he sees it, as he says himself. I have no brains above my eyes, I describe what I see. His pictures of certain types, notably the weak and vicious elements of society, are accurate and true to life, but they seem to play too large a part in his books, and have perhaps too greatly influenced his general judgment of humanity, an excessive sensibility, or the capacity for fine feelings and emotions, is a marked characteristic of Thackeray, as it is of Dickens and Carlyle, he is easily offended, as they are, by the shams of society, but he cannot find an outlet, as Dickens does, in laughter and tears, and he is too gentle to follow Carlyle in violent denunciations and prophecies, he turns to satire, influenced, doubtless, by 18th century literature which he knew so well, and in which satire played too large a part, his satire is never personal, like Pope's, or brutal, like Swift's, and is tempered by kindness and humor, but it is used too freely and generally lays too much emphasis on faults and foibles to be considered a true picture of any large class of English society. Besides being a realist and satirist, Thackeray is essentially a moralist, like Addison, aiming definitely in all his work at producing a moral impression. So much does he revere goodness, and so determined is he that his Pendennis or his Becky Sharp shall be judged at their true value, that he is not content, like Shakespeare, to be simply an artist to tell an artistic tale and let it speak its own message, he must explain and emphasize the moral significance of his work. There is no need to consult our own conscience over the actions of Thackeray's characters, the beauty of virtue and the ugliness of vice are evident on every page. Whatever we may think of Thackeray's matter, there is one point in which critics are agreed, that he is master of a pure and simple English style, whether his thought be sad or humorous, commonplace or profound. He expresses it perfectly, without effort or affectation. In all his work there is a subtle charm, impossible to describe, which gives the impression that we are listening to a gentleman, and it is the ease, the refinement, the exquisite naturalness of Thackeray's style that furnishes a large part of our pleasure in reading him. Mary Ann Evans, George Eliot 1819-1880 In nearly all the writers of the Victorian age we note, on the one hand, a strong intellectual tendency to analyze the problems of life, and on the other a tendency to teach, that island to explain to men the method by which these problems may be solved. The novels especially seem to lose sight of the purely artistic ideal of writing, and to aim definitely at moral instruction. In George Eliot both these tendencies reach a climax. She is more obviously, more consciously a preacher and moralizer than any of her great contemporaries, though profoundly religious at heart. She was largely occupied by the scientific spirit of the age, and finding no religious creed or political system satisfactory, she fell back upon duty as the supreme law of life. All her novels aim, first, to show in individuals the play of universal moral forces, and second, to establish the moral law as the basis of human society. Aside from this moral teaching, we look to George Eliot for the reflection of country life in England just as we look to Dickens for pictures of the city streets, and to Thackeray for the vanities of society, of all the women writers who have helped and are still helping to place our English novels at the head of the world's fiction, she holds at present unquestionably the highest rank, life, Marianne or Marian Evans, known to us by her pen name of George Eliot, began to write late in life, 
when nearly 40 years of age, and attained the leading position among living English novelists in the ten years between 1870 and 1880, after Thackeray and Dickens had passed away. She was born at Arbury Farm, Warwickshire, some 20 miles from Stratford-on-Avon, in 1819. Her parents were plain, honest folk, of the farmer class, who brought her up in the somewhat strict religious manner of those days. Her father seems to have been a man of sterling integrity and of practical English sense, one of those essentially noble characters who do the world's work silently and well, and who by their solid word of obtain a position of influence among their fellow men. A few months after George Eliot's birth the family moved to another home, in the parish of Griff, where her childhood was largely passed. The scenery of the Midland counties and many details of her own family life are reflected in her earlier novels. Thus we find her and her brother, as Maggie and Tom deliver, in the mill on the floss, her aunt, as Dinah Morris, and her mother, as Mrs. Poyser, in Adam Bede, we have a suggestion of her father in the hero of the latter novel, but the picture is more fully drawn as Caleb Garth, in Middlemarch, for a few years she studied at two private schools for young ladies, at Nuneaton and Coventry, but the death of her mother called her, at 17 years of age to take entire charge of the household. Thereafter her education was gained wholly by miscellaneous reading. We have a suggestion of her method in one of her early letters, in which she says, My mind presents an assemblage of disjointed specimens of history, ancient and modern, scraps of poetry picked up from Shakespeare, Cooper, Wordsworth, and Milton, newspaper topics, morsels of Addison and Bacon, Latin verbs, geometry, etymology, and chemistry, reviews and metaphysics, all arrested and petrified and smothered by the fast-thickening everyday accession of actual events, relative anxieties, and household cares and vexations. When Mary was 21 years old the family again moved, this time to Folshill Road, near Coventry. Here she became acquainted with the family of Charles Bray, a prosperous ribbon manufacturer, whose house was a gathering place for the free thinkers of the neighborhood. The effect of this liberal atmosphere upon Miss Evans, brought up in a narrow way, with no knowledge of the world, was to unsettle many of her youthful convictions. From a narrow, intense dogmatism, she went to the other extreme of radicalism, then about 1860 she lost all sympathy with the free thinkers, and, being instinctively religious, seemed to be groping after a definite faith while following the ideal of duty. This spiritual struggle, which suggests that of Carlyle, is undoubtedly the cause of that gloom and depression which hang, like an English fog, over much of her work, though her biographer, Cross, tells us that she was not by any means a sad or gloomy woman. In 1849 Miss Evans's father died, and the Braves took her abroad for a tour of the continent. On her return to England she wrote several liberal articles for the Westminster Review, and presently was made assistant editor of that magazine. Her residence in London at this time marks a turning point in her career and the real beginning of her literary life. She made strong friendships with Spencer, Mill, and other scientists of the day, and through Spencer met George Henry Lewis, a miscellaneous writer, whom she afterwards married. Under his sympathetic influence she began to write fiction for the magazines, her first story being, Amos Barton, 1857 which was later included in the scenes of clerical life 1858. Her first long novel, Adam Bede, 
appeared early in 1859 and met with such popular favor that to the end of her life she despaired of ever again repeating her triumph. But the unexpected success proved to be an inspiration, and she completed the mill on the floss and began Silas Marner during the following year. Not until the great success of these works led to an insistent demand to know the author did the English public learn that it was a woman, and not an English clergyman, as they supposed who had suddenly jumped to the front rank of living writers. Up to this point George Eliot had confined herself to English country life. But now she suddenly abandoned the scenes and the people with whom she was most familiar in order to write an historical novel. It was in 1860, while traveling in Italy, that she formed the great project of Romola, a mingling of fiction and moral philosophy, against the background of the mighty Renaissance movement. In this she was writing of things of which she had no personal knowledge, and the book cost her many months of hard and depressing labor. She said herself that she was a young woman when she began the work, and an old woman when she finished it. Rommel 1862-1863 was not successful with the public, and the same may be said of Felix Holt the Radical 1866 and the Spanish Gypsy 1868. The last-named work was the result of the author's ambition to write a dramatic poem which should duplicate the lesson of Romola, and for the purpose of gathering material she visited Spain, which she had decided upon as the scene of her poetical effort. With the publication of Middlemarch 1871-1872 George Eliot came back again into popular favor, though this work is less spontaneous, and more labored and pedantic, than her earlier novels. The fault of too much analysis and moralizing was even more conspicuous in Danier de Ronda 1876, which she regarded as her greatest book. Her life during all this time was singularly uneventful, and the chief milestones along the road marked the publication of her successive novels. During all the years of her literary success her husband Louis had been a most sympathetic friend and critic, and when he died, in 1878, the loss seemed to be more than she could bear. Her letters of this period are touching in their loneliness and their craving for sympathy. Later she astonished everybody by marrying John Walter Cross, much younger than herself, who is known as her biographer. Deep down below there is a river of sadness, but, I am able to enjoy my newly reopened life, writes this woman of sixty, who, ever since she was the girl whom we know as Maggie to live her, must always have someone to love and to depend upon. Her new interest in life lasted but a few months, for she died in December of the same year 1880. One of the best indications of her strength and her limitations is her portrait, with its strong masculine features, suggesting both by resemblance and by contrast that wonderful portrait of Savonarola which hangs over his old desk in the monastery at Florence. Works of George Eliot. These are conveniently divided into three groups, corresponding to the three periods of her life. The first group includes all her early essays and miscellaneous work, from her translation of Strauss's Leben Jesu, in 1846, to her union with Louise in 1854. The second group includes scenes of clerical life, Adam Bede, Mill on the Floss, and Silas Marner, all published between 1858 and 1861. These four novels of the middle period are founded on the author's own life and experience, their scenes are laid in the country and their characters are taken from the stolid people of the Midlands, with whom George Eliot had been familiar since childhood. They are probably the author's most enduring works. They have a naturalness, a spontaneity, at times a flash of real humor, 
which are lacking in her later novels, and they show a rapid development of literary power which reaches a climax in Silas Marner, the novel of Italian life. Rommel 1862-1863, marks a transition to the third group, which includes three more novels, Felix Hold 1866, Middlemarch 1871-1872, Daniel Deronda 1876, The Ambitious Dramatic Poem The Spanish Gypsy 1868, and a collection of miscellaneous essays called The Impressions of Theophrastus Such 1879, The General Impression of these works is not so favorable as that produced by the novels of the middle period, they are more labored and less interesting, they contain much deep reflection and analysis of character, but less observation, less delight in picturing country life as an island and very little of what we call inspiration, we must add, however, that this does not express a unanimous literary judgment, for critics are not wanting to assert that Daniel Deronda is the highest expression of the author's genius. The general character of all these novels may be described, in the author's own term, as psychologic realism. This means that George Eliot sought to do in her novels what Browning attempted in his poetry, that island to represent the inner struggle of a soul, and to reveal the motives, impulses, and hereditary influences which govern human action. Browning generally stops when he tells his story, and either lets you draw your own conclusion or else gives you his in a few striking lines but George Eliot is not content until she has minutely explained the motives of her characters and the moral lesson to be learned from them. Moreover, it is the development of a soul, the slow growth or decline of moral power, which chiefly interests her. Her heroes and heroines differ radically from those of Dickens and Thackeray in this respect, that when we meet the men and women of the latter novelists, their characters are already formed, and we are reasonably sure what they will do under given circumstances. In George Eliot's novels the characters develop gradually as we come to know them. They go from weakness to strength, or from strength to weakness, according to the works that they do and the thoughts that they cherish. In Romola, for instance, Tito, as we first meet him, may be either good or bad, and we know not whether he will finally turn to the right hand or to the left. As time passes, we see him degenerate steadily because he follows his selfish impulses, while Romola, whose character is at first only faintly indicated, grows into beauty and strength with every act of self-renunciation. In these two characters, Tito and Romola, we have an epitome of our author's moral teaching, the principle of law was in the air during the Victorian era, and we have already noted how deeply Tennyson was influenced by it. With George Eliot law is like fate, it overwhelms personal freedom and inclination. Moral law was to her as inevitable, as automatic, as gravitation. Tito's degeneration, and the sad failure of Dorothea and Lydgate in Middlemarch, may be explained as simply as the fall of an apple, or as a bruised knee when a man loses his balance. A certain act produces a definite moral effect on the individual, and character is the added sum of all, the acts of a man's, life, just as the weight of a body is the sum of the weights of many different atoms which constitute it, the matter of rewards and punishments, therefore, needs no final judge or judgment since these things take care of themselves automatically in a world of inviolable moral law. Perhaps one thing more should be added to the general characteristics of George Eliot's novels. They are all rather depressing. The gladsomeness of life, the sunshine of smiles and laughter, is denied her. It is said that once, when her husband remarked that her novels were all essentially sad, she wept, 
and answered that she must describe life as she had found it. What to read? George Eliot's first stories are in some respects her best, though her literary power increases during her second period, culminating in Silas Marner, and her psychological analysis is more evident in Daniel Deronda. On the whole, it is an excellent way to begin with the freshness and inspiration of the scenes of clerical life and read her be.